Hi, Jim here. Thanks for listening to this past episode of the Ski Podcast. Since releasing this podcast, we have a new supporter of the show. The Ski Podcast is now supported by Switzerland Tourism. They will be helping us explore some of the 355 ski destinations across the country, from famous names of Samaritz, Lax, Davos and Zermatt, to the lesser-known resorts that cover their mountainous land. We will be reporting on them and telling interesting stories about the people who live and work there. In total, there are 7,067 kilometres of slopes to ski and 1,800 lifts to ride and at least 80 of them are funiculars, which is good because I do love a good funicular. Well, there's a lot to do, so while we get on with that, you can get on with listening to this episode of the Ski Podcast. Thanks, listener, and thanks, Switzerland Tourism. Hello, this is episode 35 of the Ski Podcast. This week we'll find out where the most visited ski resort in the world is. If you can visit it on this European-wide ski pass. Um, I have been in Grimentz and Zinal. Ian has gone all Boris and ziplined in VT. And we'll catch up with Husky, um, our friends. And also we've got a reminder on how to store your skis over the summer. The podcast is hosted by Ian Martin. Hi, Ian. Morning, Jim. And myself, Jim Duncan. Um, once the show is over, don't forget you can get in touch and correct us on anything we've got wrong this week or, you know, praise us for anything we've got right. <laughs> you can tweet us at the ski podcast, email ian at the ski podcast.com or jim at the ski podcast.com. One week, Ian, I'm going to get through that bit without getting it wrong. Or you can go to the website, the ski podcast.co.uk or find us on Facebook. Whew, there we go. Um, do you want to talk about weather? It's a very British thing to do, Ian. The weather in the Alps? Oh, yes, yeah, it's, it's raining, but there's still loads of snow um, coming down. I had the best part yeah, of the, day I mean, of the season, uh, the I day before the lift shut. Yeah, Valtorens closed uh, last uh, Sunday on the 5th, and I believe they had 30 centimetres of fresh snow uh, just before they closed. Yeah, it looked pretty epic. Um, I'm, uh, I should have gone over, really, shouldn't I? When did uh, La Clusa close? Um, on the 28th. They had quite a nice little party um, up in the Balm area. They built bars yeah. at different levels. It was free free wine and um, if you wanted it, and there was bands. It was uh, a good, right. good did fun. You, did, big question, though. Did you do the pond skimming? Uh, did I do the pond skimming? No, but I think I might do it next year. It's very tempting. <laughs> right. Wendy, regular okay. listener of the show, her husband did it yes. last year, um, and he strapped oh, yeah. two snowboards to his feet to skim across the pond. Okay, how successful was that? I didn't ask. But the record is, uh, I think it's 155 metres. That's a long way, isn't it? That is a very long way, yeah. But the well, reason I, I look the forward to, I to seeing way. your video next year. Yeah, um, I'll have a head cam on and everything. Um, now, the reason I brought up the weather, Ian, is um, yeah. that I'm a bit disappointed. I've not seen any marmots yet. Aha. Oh, I'm very surprised. I thought they would be out and about by now. No, I've not seen a single one, even from my new office log cabin. I see a few chamois yeah. popping down the, the field behind me. But Do you? Um, oh, that's I've, great. I've yet to see any marmots this winter. Well, that could be a good thing. Why is that? Well, I saw this story this week. It said that uh, um, marmots may well have been responsible for bringing the bubonic plague and black death into Europe. Really? Yeah. Uh, you know, rats have been unfairly burdened with it, and those cute little marmots that uh, they sell, uh, you know, stuffed toys of all over the place around the Alps were really to blame. Uh, they also kind of pin it to uh, uh, giant gerbils as well, which uh, essentially is what a marmot is. 
And um, a, I also saw a story that said that uh, in Mongolia, a couple have died of bubonic plague after eating raw marmot kidney. So if you see any marmots and you're considering eating them and eating them raw, don't. Uh, th- none of those was on my list of considerations, I'll be honest. Okay. I didn't even, you know, I, okay. went, I went to Mongolia and I didn't get offered marmot. I didn't see it on the menu. You must have been really disappointed. I, I, Mongolia, any skiing out there? Yeah, there is actually. Um, in Ulaanbaatar, the, um, the only city uh, where I think yeah. all the population pretty much live in this massive country, there is a resort called Sky Resorts. Um, I didn't ski it because we were there in the summer and I had a broken collarbone. Um, but I did um, sneak a peek. Um, there was a little bit of snow. Um, it's not massive, six kilometres. Wow. Okay. Well, you won't be able to go there right now because there's a quarantine uh, on the area and authorities have warned people against eating raw marmot meat. So you'd think people would know, but, but there you go. Not as cuddly as they look. No, I'm going to stick to feeding the fat ones in Sasfe uh, rather than eating the <laughs> ones in Mongolia. Uh, we mentioned a minute ago that Val Turin, um, uh was shut and the snow was pretty good. Um, I felt pretty sad yes. when the lift shut. Did you feel sad? Well, I wasn't out in the Alps. If if they'd been on my doorstep and I'd kind of seen them for the last day, but um, you know that's the that's the end of the season. It's it's banked. It's been a reasonable one. I kind of look forward to to next year. I guess I feel now, that it's a long way away, but I feel that Valterens is like that's the definitive. That means the season's over when Valterens shuts. Um, do you think they do it on purpose just to try and be last, even though they're not? Yes, definitely. They definitely, you know, there's a lot of kudos in being the first resort to open and the last resort to close. Um, but you can still ski. Hintertux is still open, isn't it? Are we going to, did anyone mail us to tell us that we got uh, the number of glaciers open in summer, Rob? Um, no. Did we? Uh, well, I haven't seen any. Uh, that must mean we got them right. No, I think we definitely got it wrong, but I was actually referring <laughs> to the number that I haven't been on before. Uh, maybe okay. I don't know okay. yeah <laughs> um, uh, but yeah you can ski in a few places still I think Hintertooks um, Dubai Dubai that's all I can think got of got any more no not really <laughs> uh, Zermatt oh yeah Zermatt doesn't count it's open all year round right okay um, yeah but uh, what about Kitsteinhorn Kitsteinhorn is that still open um, I don't know yeah so yeah, and there's a couple of others. I'm not an expert. I'm reading this off a list. The Multal Glacier. I don't know where it is. The Kaunatal Glacier. So They're both open till this weekend. There's tons of places to go skiing. Yeah, and plus there's some places up in Norway as well, I think. Yeah, there's always places. There was, uh, there's a place we talked about before. There's a place in Norway, I think, that opens now for three months. Yes. And, uh, yeah. That's its season. Um, it's right by a beautiful lake. Um, one day, maybe we'll go. Um, so, uh, Val Turin is shut, but you were in Val Turin a couple of weeks ago, Ian. Yeah, yeah, Easter time, I was in, uh, I was actually staying in Lake Manuel, but I went up to Val Turin's. Particularly wanted to try out this new zip wire they've got up there, which is a three-stage zip wire. I've done the one that they've got up in Arel, pretty high, about 3,000 metres. Uh, but this is a new one that they uh, put in this year, uh, and it's like a three-stage one, and um, got a bit of audio about it, I think, just now. Okay, so I'm at the uh, top of the uh, the B, as it's called, the uh, two-line 
Uh, zip wire in uh, in VT and I've just been kitted up. Got my harness on, gonna have my ski strapped to my back uh, and uh, let's see uh, how it goes. I've got to be honest here, that's a pretty annoying noise. <laughs> um, Was it less annoying in real life? Yeah, I mean if you listen to it, I did try to you know scale that noise down on the uh, on the video I did, but um, yeah, you've got other things on your mind when you're uh, kind of scooting through the air above the pieces. Now, can I start? Um, with you, there's a video and it will be on the show notes. You can look at it. Um, now it's hard to capture things in video forming. I'm going to say it kind of looks quite sanitised. Like for me, a zipline is meant to feel like dangerous. Uh, this one looked quite slow. I mean, was the thrill there? Was was it there? Yeah, thrill was definitely there. I guess that's maybe one of the things that um, you know doesn't uh, or isn't going to come across in video uh, uh, like that. But you know, you're hanging well above the. Uh, I guess the first stage maybe wasn't that uh, exciting, but the final stage where you're coming down to Valterens and you're going right over the pistes is uh is excellent that's probably the long it's also the longest stage in the steepest section and how fast do you go do you know i think it's 65 kilometers an hour but obviously it depends how heavy you are i think the heavier you are the better oh right so there's there's finally a benefit to being fat <laughs> there is although they've got a minimum and a maximum weight oh, right. my kids were actually gutted because they were above the minimum height but they weren't over the minimum weight to go on it which um, you know, pretty pretty rare that uh, these days that yeah, actually you know, or anyone would want to be heavier. Uh, nice views though. It looked uh, the views. I'm assuming are very good. Yeah, I mean, I was lucky when I did it. It was a decent day, and, and yeah, absolutely, the the views are fantastic. Obviously, it is open every day, but you know, they've been. I they told me that one day they. I think she told me they did six hundred people in one day. Uh, and it's you know 30 euros or something a, a time so you know I'm pretty sure that investment is paying back 30 euros a go so it's not included in the lift pass <laughs> it's not included in the lift pass no and you know some people would probably say oh you know ski resorts are just turning themselves into entertainment parks you know it's one step towards Disneyland but yeah everyone who did it was having a ball I think some resorts are definitely doing that, but I think others will, will won't invest in that, will they? No, um, it's it, a big deal, and you know what VT are like. Yeah, uh, interesting enough, Ian. Um, I've watched your video um, on YouTube, and the autoplay resulted in me watching a video of a woman being humped by a dolphin. So thanks for that. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know what. I don't know why. It's probably related to your viewing history, Jim. Definitely, definitely <laughs> not. Um, while we're talking about you know, things that pop up on the internet randomly, um, uh, one of the things that popped up in my social media feed, Facebook, I think it was, um, was a question asking me to guess what the most visited resort in the world was. I got it right. Ah. Would you have got it right, Ian? If you talk about the total number of lift passes sold, uh, which is probably the same thing, I think I would have got it right too, but only because I was at ListX the other week. And there was a guy called Laurent Vanat there, and he was presenting a report, which is called, I think it's the International Report into Global Skiing. Um, I want to know more about him. 
But, but first, Ian, let's not let the listeners uh, ponder the question any longer. You go first. Who did you think it was? Well, I thought it was Laplan. I thought it was Laplan too. And we both got it right. <laughs> so this comes from the International Report on Snow and Mountain Tourism, what you said. And it's presented, it's made by a man called Lauren... Ver- Lauren Vanna. Vanna. Who is he? What, what, yeah. Why does he do this report? He does it every year. Yeah, I mean, he's a consultant in the industry who's clearly very well connected uh, and very into uh, into stats and he's been collating this information mm, i'm gonna struggle now is it the sixth year i thought it was 10 years on? but i might be wrong yeah right there you go 10 years it's been going on and you know it's very very interesting information in there um you know the the uh, too long didn't read kind of summary is china is the only market that's expanding uh, the western europe has reached a peak uh, and lift pass prices in America are very expensive. Good, good to know those things, Ian. Um, what I want—I mean, I'm, I'm more interested in the fact that in this list of top fifty ski resorts in the world, um, La Plan is the top. Then it's um, Ski World Wilder, and then Lazark is third. You know, in that top twenty, we've got. Um, Chamonix, Val Terence. Why? Why isn't Val? Why isn't the Three Valleys just considered one place? Because they would smash it. They'd beat. They'd probably yeah. even beat the Plan and Lazark um, combined. For sure. The the way his, his list has been put together is, I believe, it's based on lift pass companies. So ah, in the, the Three Valleys, you got this thing that the lifts operated in the uh, in the Belleville Valley, a different company from the lifts operated in Courcheval and Mirabel. So you've got a different figure for Courcheval, Mirabel, Monterey uh, from Valterens, Arel. And, you know, if you could aggregate them, then I'm presuming if you aggregate, it looks like if you aggregated La Plana and Les Arc, then Paradisky would be the most. But that's how, that's the reason for that. All right, well, there you go. I'm glad you spoke to him and you've answered my question. That makes uh, <laughs> that makes it better for me. I'm much better. Um, the other thing I quite liked is um, there was a quote in it that said, survey of skiers' preference found that ski area size is the number one criteria, criteria when considering where to ski. Is that yes. is what you think about, Ian? Uh, I think this was some research uh, organised by James Gambrell from Duplair, which he also presented at Listex. Um, and yes, yeah, size of the ski area is very important to British skiers. Um, it doesn't seem to be as important to uh, to other Europeans. And yeah, I mean, it is something I think about. I mean, when I'm thinking about organising our uh, family holiday, um, I probably, you know, we're all reasonable skiers, including the kids, and you don't want to be, I don't think we would, sustain a week in a ski resort if it only had let's say 50 kilometers of of slopes okay i guess it's not a problem for you because you live in a ski resort with uh i don't know how many how many kilometers of slopes there are in the whole uh lacaluza area but quite a lot i think we've got um 180 and then over the road there's a bit more so we've got about 200 and something um, yeah. So yeah, it's good enough and it's challenges. Yeah, I mean, we we went to Kutai a couple of years ago, which is about fifty uh, kilometres, and we went for four days uh, skiing, and that worked out, you know, about right. Um, so it is important to me, but it's uh, very important to British people for sure. I suppose it's quite um, an ambiguous sentence. The size matters. It didn't say if it's the biggest size or if you know it just needs to be a reasonable size. I suppose. 
bits of factor. And then I think second on that was uh, altitude, wasn't it? Because uh, also British people are very concerned about how high that ski resort would be, um, which Europeans, I believe, are, are less concerned about. Yeah, they don't seem to be as bothered. So in with the plan being so popular, I thought we could ask um, podcast supporters Snow only about the property market in the plan. Hi Jim, uh, this week we're looking at some property opportunities in La Plan and some uh, smaller villages a little bit down the valley. Uh, Snow only has 42 listings in La Plan, um, so quite a lot of um, options for people if they went to the website. Um, the price per square metre in La Plan is around €5,000 per square metre, which is a lot less than some of the bigger resorts like Val d'Azera, around €20,000 per square metre, so quite a lot of opportunity there. Uh, we have a one-bedroom uh, for only €69,000 in Montchevin, and we have some really nice new ski-in, ski-out developments in Montalbert, um, anywhere from around uh, three to four bedroom, duplex, ski-in, ski-out, really, really nice with spa, pool and residence. Um, and if you want to be a little bit more centrally located, uh, we have again some really nice ski and ski out opportunities from 279,000 euros up to around a million euros, uh, one to five bedroom. But most of these are ski and ski out, so really, really appealing if you're uh, if you're a little bit um, if you don't really fancy a walk back to your apartment. Uh, there's also a really nice lease back um, opportunity in a ski in ski out location, um, one to four bedrooms, two hundred and four thousand euros to five hundred eighty-five thousand euros, but it's set at uh, two thousand and fifty meters, um, so really really appealing for a snowshore uh, property. Um, that's all. Um, that's all from us at the moment. Take care. There we go. Bye. Thanks, Mark. Once again, um, if you are considering buying or selling a ski property, then Snow Only is the only place for you. An impartial platform dedicated to ski properties with over 3,500 properties listed. If you can't find what you're looking for, then sign up to their property alerts. Everyone loves a newsletter, don't they, Ian? Um, snowonly.com, Mountains of Property. There you go. Thanks for supporting us, Snow Only. Okay, this season saw the launch of the Magic Pass in Switzerland. The pass cost 900... I'm going to say chuffs... That's all right, is it? Um, 900 chuffs. <laughs> chuffs. C-H-F. Swiss francs, yeah? Yeah. Everyone calls them chuffs, right? <laughs> the Swiss pass costs 900 chuffs. Unless you bought it the day before this podcast goes out, um, then you will get it for half price for next season. That is uh, up-to-date consumer advice here, Ian. Um, it covers 30 resorts, summer and winter, which I quite like. Um, places like Villar, Crans, Montana and Sasfe. Um, I've read a tweet from you, Ian, that said uh, the Magic Pass um, resulted in lift pass volumes increasing by 30% in some resorts um, that were on board for the sign-up, which is pretty good. Yeah, well, that, that was actually Laurent Vanat, because I asked that question at Listex, and he said, I, I, we're going to come on to Snow Pass in a minute, but I asked him how Magic Pass are done, and he said their, their lift pass sales for those Magic Pass ski resorts, which is a lift pass that covers, I think, 30 different resorts in Switzerland was up 30% and their revenue up 27%. And that compares with revenue to 9% across all Swiss resorts. So you look at that and think, well, those resorts there have definitely benefited from it. That's good for them. So it, as a marketing ploy, it works. And to get people to experience new resorts, that definitely works, right? Yep. Um, but like you mentioned just there, there's a new pass on the block called the Snow Pass. Ian, tell me about that. Yeah. Well, essentially, they've 
they've copied this idea of magic paths. They've looked at it. Uh, and they have, I don't know if they have officially launched yet, but I think yesterday or the day before they announced which resorts they're going to include. And um, it says that their normal price is going to be 895 euros, but they're going to have a mere 50,000 available at 395 euros. Uh, you know, they spread out, they've got a lot of resorts spread out across... Uh, uh, nine different countries and you know could work out as a uh, as value for someone it's worth pointing yeah, none of the big none of the big resorts so or no, no. but I, when i looked at the resource list uh, first of all none of them were on that um, world top 50 list and second ah, second good research sec- like it secondly the list did kind of have a feel of um, a knockoff fashion market store you know like uh, selling bobby hill figure <laughs> there was uh, what i liked uh, a voranaz <laughs> Um, Vingen <laughs> and St. Antoinette. So, no, I'm not, I'm not knocking them. I haven't been to any of those resorts. And I expect that, you know, you'll find some absolute gems and I expect they're probably very good. Um, yeah, what I do like is in their list of all the resorts, so you've got two or three in there which say, coming soon, top secret. <laughs> like they're about to announce them. But I know they've been negotiating with people for quite some time because when I was in um, Aix-les-Bains, no, Axe Toidema, same place, uh, a little while ago, which we covered in episode 33. I was talking to the commercial director there, and he had a meeting with Snowpass, and they were discussing whether or not to get involved in it, and whether or not by being involved and including themselves within it, they would actually be undermining their own season pass sales. Now, if you look at that, that um, the numbers from Magic Pass, apparently their lift pass uh, sales and revenue went up... Uh, and, you know, a lot more by being involved with Magic Pass. Um, but it hasn't convinced, um, for example, Axe, because I had a look on the uh, on the list of uh, French ski resorts and they obviously decided not to get involved. And you're right that most of the resorts are pretty small. But if it works, you know, for them and they boost their revenues, then that could be great. I think it's probably, you know, if you lived in the area down south uh, or, you know, somewhere near the Alps and... You know, I, I did um, on Snowheads, there's a guy on there, I can't remember his uh, username now, but he detailed how he bought a Magic Pass, uh, lives in the UK, I think they went out pre-Christmas, uh, half term and two weeks at Easter and drove each time and they used a Magic Pass to ski for their for their whole family and they ended up, you know, Cromontana I think is one of the you know bigger resorts um, included they went to Cron Montana a bunch of times but they skied in all these other little resorts and if you're only there for like a day or so then you know really interesting experience to go to these other places and try something new and you know got incredibly good value for money for their lift passes for the season well I think there's there's it's kind of a different market isn't it you know the the magic pass is Switzerland so that's quite a contained area really so you can kind of do that whereas this um, snow passes spread across nine countries um, so you know in Switzerland you can pop to those little resorts a lot more conveniently and yet like you say get a good value for money whereas if you're um, experiencing like the, the snow pass across all these bigger ones then you've got a lot more commuting to do is it going to be as easy just to you know um, move around and do that I mean who is it for who's going to buy this people with camper vans I assume 
Yeah, or locals who are in maybe a city who are going to do that same type of thing and go out to a bunch of different resorts. You know, during the winter, maybe every weekend. Mm-hmm. You know that type of that type of option. And it's you only get ten days in each resort as well. Is that what it is? Mm. Right. Okay. I wonder what the uh, small print was. Um, the other question is, um, why is Scotland not involved? Who who uh, who said no in that meeting? Was it Scotland or yeah, was it Snowpass? Uh, right. They probably didn't think of it, but who knows? Maybe they've approached everyone. Uh, that. Does that even happen? Is there a, is there a, like a ski Scotland pass? I don't think there is. I think is there, there is. There is. Yes, there is. Gosh. Well, 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 you send me the link to that, and I'll include it in the show notes. All right. Then. Shall I send you a link to the um, ski Mongolia pass? <laughs> yeah. Come on. Um, so, I um, have recently been skiing in Grimentz and Zinal. And they were uh-huh. they were in Switzerland. In Switzerland, and they were actually instrumental in the creation of uh, the magic path. So they were they right. were very pro it, and they really pushed it. Um, so right. I've been there, and I've tried it out. Do you want to know a bit about it? Yeah, tell me. So um, it's in Switzerland, obviously, as I described. It's in between Verbier and Zermatt, so about two hours from Geneva. Um, it's two um, sleepy ski mountain towns linked by a free shuttle bus and a lift. And when I went, I parked in Grimentz, where you can access both mountains by um, cable cars. Um, I started by exploring Grimentz, which is on the, the right-hand side of the peace map. Um, the majority of the ski area is above the tree line, and it's absolutely stunning. Now, I went uh, a week before the season ended, and pretty much everything was open, so that's a pretty good result. I mean, it's been a fairly decent end to the season, so we can't judge up. But all the peace um, were really well kept. Um, there was a nice mix of red and blue and blacks, um, and there was no really rubbish runs. Do you know, um, it felt like each run was kind of worth it and not put in for convenience or kind of extra mileage. Um, so it was a it's a good ski area. It's quite small in terms of you know big areas, but you know, you've got about seventy kilometres, which isn't bad. Um, before lunch, um, I headed back down into the town, so you can ski back or catch the cable car back into Zenal, um, into Grimentz, and from there you catch the cable car out into the Zeno area. Um, it's quite a new um, link that, but it's worth doing. Uh, most of the runs in Zeno are reds and blacks. There's really very few blue runs, but each one's a brilliant little red and black runs with nice pitches. Um, and it's not often you feel like the run matches the color of the peace poles running down the side, but it, it kind of felt like it did that. We always talk about views and stuff, but Zeno has some epic views. There's this dam um, in the valley between the, the two resorts, and it's absolutely stunning. And you feel dramatically isolated in these two ski resorts. Um, you know, like, uh, I don't know, Val d'Isere, you feel like you're really in the hub of something. Or even Chamonix, you know, have to go a long way to feel kind of isolated. But you feel like proper in the middle of nowhere with really good views. Um, yeah. we, we finished the day, right, on this... Um, um, crazy black run called the chamois i posted it on um, our facebook feed um and i think it's called the chamois because you've got a bee like one it's really steep um you know you come in on this vertigo inducing oh i saw that tra- photo yeah yeah you come in on this vertigo inducing traverse and then you just stand there staring down which is probably about you know 800 meters of down that is just a straight run carved into the mountain it's insane and it's so steep. Yeah. Um, it looked. It, I tell you what, it reminded me of when I saw that photo. 
actually one of those speed skiing courses that uh, you know someone like uh, you know Jan Farrell, those guys would uh, um, you know just go straight down. Absolutely, um, they put no turns in. I probably put a hundred in. <laughs> um, yeah, it would mean it's insanely steep. It go, um, it t- uh, veers off and goes into this little rocky section, um, and then from there you can have a breather and you look back up. And it, I mean, on a on a fresh day, that is some seriously amazing free ride just there. You know, little rock drops if you're a bit adventurous. Uh, in fact, the whole area, you know, there's tons of free ride that you can drop off the back of the ski area and easily get back okay. into the parking. Um, so yeah, it's a pretty cool place. What well, is a site downer in, you know, if you want to park like I did, you have to ski that black run down or catch the, the chairlift, the cable car down. Um, but it goes into a far end of a car park. So once you finish skiing, no matter what happens, if you do that and you want to go back to your car, you've probably got uh, a good five or six minute walk. It's probably a free bus, but I was too impatient to wait for that. But yeah, I highly recommend it for, you know, a couple of days skiing if you fancy it. Okay, well, that's another one to add to my uh, list if I get the magic pass, I can include it. As it goes, I'm actually going out to that area this summer, so I won't be able to test it as a skier, but I'm uh, going on a, on a trail running press trip to, to that valley. Ooh. So I will check out the, uh, the, the reservoir or lake or dam or whatever it is between uh, two, two places and, and assess the uh, slopes for free ride potential. Oh, there's tons of it. Um, just so you know, Ian, there's 115 kilometres of lift, 21 chairs, a one downhill drag lift, the first ever downhill drag lift I've ever been on, and uh, it costs 62 chuffs a day or 294 <laughs> the season. There you go. How did you find the chuff to euro exchange rate? Did it did it feel expensive over there? Um, I don't. Uh, it's about. I don't know. I don't really think about it. I try not to think about it because. Um, it's even more long good for me because I get paid uh, in the UK, then transfer it into a euro account, and then I had a third transfer into a chuff account uh, to pay in chuff. So I tried not to think about all that um, <laughs> right, lost okay. exchange money. I'll tell you something that also cropped up uh, in Listex, more research that showed that um, the perception of how expensive, uh, for example, Switzerland is relative to the experience of people who go is out of place so most people who don't go to switzerland perceive it to be extremely expensive but people who actually do go there don't think it's that expensive really yep it's Um, that gap you know but i mean they might be comparing it with going for example in france rather than in, in italy uh, but that's definitely something that, you know, leapt out to me that, uh, you know, I found interesting. I mean, you know, when I've been to Switzerland in more recent years, I've been to Zermatt, which is definitely expensive. But I'm thinking maybe, you know, in Cremence and Zinal, it's not necessarily like that. Mm, I think, uh, I think we paid about 15, 18 chuffs for a pizza. That's, <laughs> is that, I didn't have, a, should have had half a beer and then that's the, that's the, uh, that's the guideline set. But I didn't, so I couldn't tell you, I'm afraid. Um, while we're talking about food, actually, there's a nice link for you. Who have you been talking to? Uh, yeah, uh, again, at Listex, interesting, you know, industry chat. I met um, Paddy from Husky, who, um, well, he told me a little bit about, you know, Husky is the uh, the food delivery service in the Alps. And when we were in Le Weir, we actually got 
um, some some curry and rice uh, delivered to our apartment, which was it tasted good. It arrived on time, and I was interested to talk to him about how their season had gone because their goal for this season was to expand so they could deliver to every single ski resort in France, which is hugely ambitious. And if you listen to the interview, you'll hear a bit about how it went. Great, so I'm here at uh, Listex at the Snow Centre with Paddy Griffith, who is the founder of, uh, of Husky, which I had the opportunity to, uh, to try their product this winter for the first time, it was very good. Um, do you want to just briefly explain what, what it is that Husky yeah, offers? Sure. Um, yeah, so Husky came about when me and a, a mate from uni were essentially um, quite frustrated skiers. We were skiing every year together, usually self-catered, and we just realised how many chores there were to do on any given day, be it, you know, get the, sort the kids out and pick up the supermarket stuff or cook or clean all that stuff. And we said, look, there really should be a service where food and drink gets delivered and you don't have to do all the cooking yourself and you just have more time to hang out with your family and ski. So we designed the, the idea came really... Uh, it was basically we wanted to create a product for ourselves. Um, he, his background was in sales. I was a sort of marketing guy. We sort of said, why don't we put our heads together and try and come up with it? Um, and then three seasons ago, we came up with the idea um, and launched it. Yeah. And we've grown yeah, a fair bit. Well, you, you have grown a lot, haven't you? Because it's a last season that's just finished was your third year. And uh, you were explaining to me about how the big difference in, in your kind of base, which is in Borg Samaris, is yeah, that right? Borg Samaris, yeah. And, and you moved uh, at the beginning of last season, so how, where did you move to and from uh, uh, there? Do you want to just um, yeah, talk so, me through that and yeah, the challenges so, so that you when had? When we got going, in the year one, we just wanted to test and, and see if, if we were the only ones who wanted this service or not. Yeah. So we um, just focused on the Tarantes, which is Latine and Val d'Isere and Les yeah. Arc and Saint-Foix. Um, and we found a little kind of high street shop, essentially, on uh, in the middle of Borg. Yeah. And from there, we had a little office, and a, we put a freezer in, uh, and we could run the teams and deliveries from there. But really running the whole thing with two vans, just servicing that valley. Um, and then it went pretty well, and we stayed there for another season, and did the three valleys, yeah. and also tested a bit in the Porte du Soleil. So by then, we were looking after 20 resorts in three different key areas. Yeah. Um, and then by this year, we suddenly realized that actually, you know, the demand was there. And so it was time for us to get a custom-built space, which had really simple things like a place you could drive a van into so you can load directly from the freezer into the van, yeah. as opposed to a load of blokes carrying boxes from a shop out to the street uh, to load a van up. Yeah. Um, but also, we wanted to try and develop our own product. You know, the first two seasons, we imported a brand called Cook from the UK. Yeah, I know, the, know I think the brand is yeah. good, you know, people know it, yeah. but you wanted to move beyond exactly. that. So yeah. it's got kind of like really good posh ready meals that people yeah. love, but what it didn't do was, you know, the Savoyard food that you eat when you're on ski holiday. Yeah. So, you know, where was the tartiflette, for example? Yeah. Um, and so this year we also said, what if we built our own kitchen um, and hired a chef and developed a product um, and we could actually sort of satisfy that bit. So we'd have two sets of products that work really well together. Um, so our challenge was, yeah, we yeah. had to stump up some cash and we went out and did some fundraising, um, which we did with, the, with some private investors who liked the idea. Yeah. Um, and then we found an amazing um, new warehouse build, which was basically across town in Borg, right. um, which was big enough to build a really big freezer. Like we've gone from a freezer that's the size of a, a study in a house. To, yeah. It's about the size of a squash court now. <laughs> so a really big right. freezer that you can walk in. And then a big building where we've built our, yeah. own, our own kitchen um, and we've got a much bigger space where but we can have a great... I believe that literally 
before you're about to open for the season for business yeah. you had a problem you know in the warehouse itself that you yes. managed to find a way yeah. around but what, yes. tell us so, about that. so on paper that sound that was a great plan right which is you know <laughs> how hard can it be you, you sign up for a, a place and you, you fit it out yeah but more or less every single thing we had to do to get the kitchen ready and get this new freezer working was um beset by classic sort of french business disasters so the, yeah the freezer was the first we built the freezer and it was ready to go and a truck had left the UK with about £100,000 worth of stock that would basically keep us going till um, the new year. Yeah. Um, so this is all frozen food that needed to be kept you know, under 20 degrees. Um, but the electricity company, with 12 hours to go, <laughs> called us up and said, just to let you know that we're not actually going to supply you electricity for probably six months. <laughs> At which point we uh, said, look, that, you know, that is a bit of a problem. <laughs> Um, and so the team had to do what they've been doing all season, which was suddenly magic up a solution. Yeah. And so they got out and they managed to chat up some people locally, uh, and we managed to basically extend a power line from someone else's business. That's brilliant. To ours. It reminds me of the kind of start of ski seasons for people who've done ski seasons, trying to get chalets up and running. When you go into a chalet at the beginning of the season, and you realise that the, the the ground floor is completely flooded over the summer or yeah. something like this, and you, you know your first guests are arriving in a few days' time. Yeah. But you you know you got round that and you sorted that out, and then I guess the other main challenge then this winter has been the logistics because you're serving a much larger yes. number of resorts. Yeah. So, you know, not, I, I can see how from Borg, you know, to get up to Teen and, and Val Lazare, you know, Les Arcs, La Rosière yeah. is fairly straightforward. Yeah. But how, how do you deal with the resorts that are further afield? Yes. Okay, so, so our ambition was to try and, could we serve all resorts in France, in the French Alps at least? Yeah. Um, so that was everything from sort of Chamonix up in the north, right the way down to kind of Les Alpes and Alpes d'Huez in the yeah. south. Um, so this was a big challenge, but thankfully, like two of our business partners are a, an ex-British Army couple called Anna and Duncan, um, and so they are the logistics experts. Like they, they've run big squadrons in wartime conditions, and right. so for them it was one of those challenges to say, which you know, how do we set set up for this? Um, and so they got they do what army people do. They got a giant map out and they stuck <laughs> loads of stickers all over it, and they planned routes. Um, and I guess what we were trying to work out was, could we run it all from one big depot in the middle of France uh, in Bourg-Saint-Maurice? Um, or would we have to have loads of little kind of sub-freezes sort of sprinkled around yeah. the Alps? Which, which uh, would save time, but operationally would have been very expensive. Um, but ultimately, we committed to running everything from, um, from our place. We had to hire more drivers, so this year we've been running a team of 10 yeah. uh, with six different vans in circulation all the time. Okay. Um, and essentially what we have is we've, we've mapped kind of bus routes all around France, yeah. or French Alps at least. Uh, and so there is a northern kind of line where refrigerated vans head north and go on a big loop of all the big resorts up there. Another one heads south and does the loop you know, down the south. And then we have smaller vans which are doing kind of two or three hour round trips to Three Valleys, Pointe du Soleil, Grand Massif. Yeah. Um, and some of the more immediate stuff. And thankfully, it's worked pretty well. Like, I'm sure there's lots of ways we can improve it, but every single delivery got there in time. Well, I can, and, I can tell you that our delivery uh, to Lehman Weir arrived exactly like within five, possibly ten minutes yeah. of the time that uh, you know, we, yeah. we'd well, arranged, well, which, was, which was very impressive. And when I talked to them, they said, oh, if we hadn't have been in, because you know they do quite a lot of the deliveries. We were staying with CGH and Lehman Weir. They would just talk to the uh, the yeah. reception staff, and they would let them in, and they just drop the food yeah. off for us and stick it in our fridge for us. Yeah, well, our, our drivers are especially um, trained to be sort of charming types who can sort of, <laughs> if things go wrong, 
they yeah. can chat someone up and come up with a solution. Yeah. But yeah, our ambition though is that you know, if people are pre-booking before they travel, my aim is always that the food is in the in the chalet or the apartment before yeah. they get there. Yeah. Well, you know, from from my experience, it was uh, very good, and you've clearly you know had a massive step forward. So. Um, you know, and I think as well, I've said this before, that you're extremely well positioned with the way that the ski market is changing. Because I think there is a kind of paradigm shift away from catered mm-hmm. accommodation to self-catered accommodation to do with all sorts of different reasons yeah. uh, that we've discussed there uh, previously. So I think you're in a really good uh, position uh, for that. And I wish you the best of luck for your fourth thank season. Thank you year. very much. We're looking forward to it. No worries. Thank you. I have to say, it's nice to hear a positive business story coming out of the Alps. Yeah, for sure. I mean, obviously, it's not without uh, challenges, but um, you know, they've they've got a good idea and they're working hard to make it happen. Um, so obviously, they're 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 growing their infrastructure and putting more cars on the road, which I'm sure you know every business has to go through that. But what I found interesting, Ian, is um, in Innsbruck they've launched a green peace basher, and I don't mean literally painted it green. It's the Piston Bully <laughs> E100. And uh, it's an electric peace basher. How cool is that? Yeah, I did see that story today. It's um, it's a hundred percent, you know, electric vehicle. This one because there've been other hybrid versions around before. Yeah, it's great. I wonder, you know, your first thought is what's its range? I didn't actually read that. Uh, it can uh, it can peace for three hours with a six hour charge. Right, three hours. So normally they go through the night on eight hour shifts. I think. So you probably need so, more uh, of them than a normal one. Yeah. But it's a very good thing for sure, and you know resorts uh, are always interested in you know promoting their sustainability. So I'm sure it will sell. Right then, let's do some reviews. Um, I haven't got any this week, Ian. I'm afraid. Have you got any? <laughs> uh, well, fortunately, yeah, I got one. This is from Merlin. What a rubbish segment it would have been if we didn't have any. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you know, send us your reviews. Oh, this one is from iTunes. They gave us five stars. Uh, Merlin one two seven. They say quite a lot. Um, I'll just say that they consider Jim and Ian's meandering conversations a compelling and droll listen for any ski enthusiast. Their actual title is the best ski podcast this side of the Atlantic, which um, you know the uh, the competitive side of me uh, thinks. Are you sure there's better podcasts on the other side of the Atlantic? Uh, but then they go into everything we cover: chat, interviews, uh, ski news, etc. Um, it says this is not for the hip or the uber cool. What do you think about that? Probably very accurate. <laughs> <laughs> it says if Jim and Ian did uh, ever did that, it was more than ten years ago, and probably they would probably not be called Jim and Ian for that matter. However, for the more discerning listener who appreciates the mountains for their wonder and skiing for the test, minus the dancing on tables to Eurotrash, this is the only ski podcast for you. Have you been dancing on the tables at all this, this winter? I've been very tame this winter, Ian. I haven't really been out very much, which I quite enjoyed. It's been a nice break. You know, It's a different sort of season when you've got children and um, responsibilities as opposed to you know just getting paid 50 quid to... Uh, clean some toilets you kind of have a different different approach to <laughs> yeah. life isn't there for sure well thanks to merlin 127 uh, they also say keep, keep up the good work guys you make the commute something to look forward to when the next episode lands so they should land to you very shortly and uh, to everyone else who's listening out there to our listener uh please do give us a review send us an email uh, drop us a tweet uh, put something on our facebook page 
you know, all feedback is is good. We're very interested in in your views. And um, yeah, don't forget to send the podcast once you finish listening to your hip and uber cool ski mates. Um, I know in that, sorry, Ian, I want to go back. He said yeah. um, you, we probably would not be called Jim and Ian. Um, what, yes. what was your season nickname? Uh, Grand Fromage. Grand Fromage. You ate a lot of cheese, right? Or you were just a cheesy person? I was a boss. Sorry? What was? I was the boss. All oh, right. The resort manager. Okay. I see. You were the boss. Grand Fromage. <laughs> Um, I was, uh, my nickname was Jim. <laughs> right. Where do they get that one from? Then? Uh, I think um, my mum christened me James, so they kind of shortened it to Jim. Genius, I know. Right. Um, yeah. But I, it did remind me, like, um, I know you know a lot about this because you used to produce them, but, you know, um, there was uh, hoodies and season worker tops that had people's names on, and they still do this. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was a, a thing to have your nickname in between your your first and last name but a lot of the time they were literally just made up for the sake of it um just so you had a nickname and you know most of the time they were pretty rubbish i think on one of them i was called no soap for absolutely no reason i was very hygienic but um, my favorite one that we pointlessly came up for which you know it didn't stick but there was a, um, a, a kp that worked in the hotel i was in and he was partial to going out late and having a good old party time. And, you know, he skied a lot as well. But he would also, in the middle of his shift, say he was going to the toilet and then just have a nap on the loo for about 45 minutes till someone went and knocked on the door. So we developed a name and we called him Long Poo. I thought I enjoyed that one. Right, charming. Sorry, was he a, um, a kind of a maintenance guy? No, he was a kitchen porter. Kitchen porter, because a maintenance guy is normally the hardest to find in a ski resort. You know, they're very good at being elusive and uh, keeping out of the way. Okay, Ian, right. I asked Simon from Waxoff.fr in Morzine, a ski servicing company who uh, has taken us through what we've done in the past to let me know what I should be doing to store my skis for the winter. Okay, so he says, basically, clean off any mud from the bottom um, of your skis from the end of season slush skiing um, I definitely need to do that and then you need to uh, um, with some sandpaper rub off any rust um, on the rails um, that have accumulated after you've just dumped them in the back of your car or van or um, wet after that last day at the end of the season thinking that you don't need to do anything right so the next thing once you've given them a good bougie down um, and cleaned them off um, dry them properly let them really dry out um, and do that in a nice warm room or out in the sunshine then the next step is going back to basics remember that first time you tried to wax your skis you want to do that you want to put way too much wax on it Simon says um, so much wax that it covers the edges and the key thing here is not to use um, cheap flour cheap flour um, not to use cheap um, wax use the good stuff then put them somewhere dry and cool for the summer um, and you don't need to do anything again until November end of November when the snow starts to fall and the lifts start to open then you can get them out and scrape off that big layer of wax and you're ready to go skiing next winter thanks for the help Simon good work good work and and now you're living in the Alps so you're going to snap up a few bargain end of season uh, skis because they always have loads of great sales, don't they? Well, well, I will do, um, but I'm waiting 
to, on this weekend, Ian, um, it's uh, Vida Grenier up in Le Clouseau. Um Do you know what that is? Well, Grenier is a cellar, so I'm guessing it's a, like a, a massive yard sale. Yeah. Um, I've been to one down in Annecy and there was some really good stuff, but I wasn't prepared for it. I, didn't, um, I wasn't ready, so I'm researching what I think I might want to buy. I definitely reckon I can pick up some cheap cross-country skis and some cheap cross-country boots. Um, loads of kids skis and stuff like that all for sale like 10 euros a pop so um, i'm gonna go for that first Ian, see what i can collect and i'll let you know right and um, the other thing i'm going to do before we're back next week is i will be joining in um, the slope clean so we're going to go out with, ah. with the family and a bag and um, you know like a beach clean in the uk we're going to go and uh, pick up yeah what i assume no, that is that is great i blogged about uh, the one in out the Wiz, um for one of my clients uh, recently and uh, i can't remember how much they uh, found now but it's uh, ridiculous you know at the end of the season when you're going up a chairlift and everything's mm. melting beneath and you, you see all of these different things that have been dropped off the uh, off the lift. Um, yeah, it's a shocker, really, isn't it? Yeah, I know my wife is um, hoping to find her mobile phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, if you're lucky, you might find uh, someone else's. Yeah, good luck. Good luck with that. Um, can I chip in uh, something as we're just coming to the end now? You know, we we did the Alps uh, in our last uh, episode, being the ski book group. That we uh, that we covered that was back in episode thirty four and we've done a bunch of other books uh, over time uh, as well. If there are any listener or if you're a listener out there and you know a great ski book that we should read for our ski book group, could you let us know and we'll uh, we'll stick it on the list because we need something else to read, don't we? Unless you've got one up your sleeve already. No, um, I've currently found in the chalet that I um, live in um, the full series of Herman Markle's um, Wallanders. So I'm currently working my way through that. So don't rush with your book reviews. I've got, I've got plenty. <laughs> right, okay. And the other thing I was going to say uh, to our dear listener is that um, you know, we, this is episode 35. You know, we've got 34 other uh, podcasts uh, out there that you can still listen to. Some of them are actually more than that because we didn't number them all for the uh, Pyeongchang Olympics. But if you listen back, I notice that the numbers keep going up for all our old podcasts. Like the the ones that have uh, got the highest number of listens are thirty three, which uh, was the drug dealers and ski resorts, which might be it's a bit of a a um, clickbait. Uh, thirty, which was ski touring in Morocco and the Eddie the Eagle interview. Um, twenty eight, wolves in the Alps, um, is also quite a popular one. But I, our most listened to episode uh, of all time is episode twenty five. It's um. I can't remember exactly, but it's, uh, the title is St. Anton Charlotte Banks, who's the, uh, the ski across uh, or snowboard cross girl who swapped from France to Britain, and Billy Morgan reveals his favourite resort. So if you want to know what Billy Morgan's favourite resort is, have a listen to our back catalogue. It's Le Plan. <laughs> it's not. It's not. All right, then. I'll have to no. listen again. Right then, if that's everything, thank you very much for listening. Like you said, do uh, get in touch with the show, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks' time. All right, see ya. Bye, Jim. <laughs>